Hey everyone, welcome to the New Deal Podcast. In this episode, the Senate passed the infrastructure bill and began work on the budget. COVID is running rampant in the South. Census results are here. And we have a new Jeopardy host. Here we go. The New Deal Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Nutini. For more from The New Deal, head on over to thenewdeal.com for podcast episodes, blog posts, and YouTube videos. Please follow me on Twitter at Real New Deal and over on Facebook and Instagram. And of course, don't forget to subscribe on YouTube. And wherever you are listening or watching, please rate and review. Let me know how I'm doing. I would really appreciate it. And finally, if you like what you hear from The New Deal, let your family and friends know. Tell him, hey, I listened to this podcast. It's this uh, weird guy, funny voice, uh, but he, you know, makes some good points and I enjoy listening to him. Uh, so check out the New Deal podcast or go to the newdeal.com and read some of his stuff. It's it's okay. Let him know. I would appreciate it. On that note, in case you missed it, uh, please check out the article I released earlier this week over on uh, Medium and at the newdeal.com called Government, a little competition for the free market. Just explores why we pay so much for the things we do and why we don't let the government give it to us cheaper. Uh, So if you're into that kind of thing, check out that article. I spent a lot of time on the podcast talking about serious things, heavy things, lots of stats. So today, let's start light. We have a new Jeopardy host, or should I say, hosts. The new Jeopardy hosts were announced, and much to my disappointment, it is not LeVar Burton. Should have been LeVar Burton. Reading Rainbow, Star Trek, absolutely, LeVar Burton. Don't know why it's not LeVar Burton, but whatever. Jeopardy! selected Mike Richards as the main host. He is currently the executive producer on the show. And Mayim Bialik of Big Bang Theory fame will host Jeopardy! primetime events, so a little bit of a departure from the norm there, to host. Little info. Richards had previously auditioned to replace Bob Barker on The Price is Right after being the executive producer on that show as well, but he lost out to Drew Carey. Richard says that he had no part in choosing himself as the new host, even though he's the executive producer on the show. I'm personally interested in what the show executives saw in Richards that would put him at Alex Trebek's coveted podium over the likes of people like, of course, LeVar Burton, who I clearly favored. If you go down to sources, there's an article there that talks about this selection as the Jeopardy host, there is some controversy over the way Richards has treated people behind the scenes in the past, which also makes me wonder why he was selected as the host. So if you're interested in that, check it out. I don't want to spend too much time on it, but we do have two new Jeopardy hosts. And the sad fact is that it's not LeVar Burton. LeVar, I was with you. I was with you all the way. So sorry. But anyway, new Jeopardy host. There it is. As I was preparing this episode over the last couple of days, I kept having to write and rewrite and rewrite the episode because so much stuff happened. So many things changed. Even I I think I just made my final note about five minutes ago because I was like, oh man, I can't leave this out either. The news this week has been 
all over the place. I'm going to do my best to try to cover it, and I'll try to get through it as quickly as I can. So first, order of business. Last week on the show, I discussed the controversy surrounding New York Governor Andrew Cuomo after a scathing report came out that alleged sexual assault, a terrible workplace environment, and other things about his behavior and about the way his administration was working. President Biden, Nancy Pelosi, the Senate delegation from New York, all called for Cuomo's designation, and this week, we got the resignation. Again, this came amidst multiple scandals, including allegations of sexual assault, a poor workplace environment, dishonesty about COVID numbers related to nursing homes, and so there was a lot there. I was talking to my fiancé about the sexual assault allegations, and the reality is, even if those allegations were not to be true, which I think they absolutely are because they seem very credible. But even without that, some of the stuff in the report was so damning that there's no way he should have stayed in office, period. I think he made the right move. I would like to play a piece of his resignation announcement and discuss it after I play it. So here is Andrew Cuomo's resignation announcement from this week. New York tough means New York loving. And I love New York. And I love you. And everything I have ever done has been motivated by that love. And I would never want to be unhelpful in any way. And I think that given the circumstances, the best way I can help now is if I step aside and let government get back to governing. And therefore, that's what I'll do because I work for you. And doing the right thing is doing the right thing for you. Because as we say, it's not about me. It's about we. Not about him. It's about us. Or rather, it's about the citizens of New York. It's not about me. It's about we. Which would have been great things to consider before you potentially, allegedly, sexually assaulted a woman in your office, maybe multiple, lied about COVID numbers. It's really disappointing. It's really disappointing overall because we saw at the beginning of COVID, he seemed to become the leader that the country needed publicly when Trump was absent. And so it's really disappointing, once again, that this type of thing happens. But as I pointed out last week, the Democrats hold their own accountable. Scathing report comes out, undeniable evidence, Everyone calls for his resignation. Here we are a week later. He has resigned. Wish the Republicans had any standards for the people that they elected to office whatsoever. Would be really nice if they stepped up to the plate and showed some integrity. Waiting on you, GOP, to show some integrity. Like I mentioned last week, Al Franken resigned within two weeks of that breaking. Cuomo resigned within weeks of this breaking. If this happened to Donald Trump, If a scathing report came out about Donald Trump the way it came out like this, Trump would just say, never happened, none of it ever happened, and that would be it. He'd tell his followers, oh, they're making it up, they're trying to get it, they they hate me. He would just stay, and they would let it go. Because even the most serious of allegations against Trump were dismissed by Trump, and people just believed him. Cuomo could have done that. To his credit, he didn't. He resigned. We need to stop with the hypocrisy. I really hope that, you know, the other half of the political electorate there can hold their people accountable. Would really appreciate it, guys. 
like I said last week with the Brett Kavanaugh situation, there are always better people. There are 300 million people in this country that are always better people. So if someone messes up, they can't handle it, they don't deserve to be there, take them out, put someone else in there. There are other people. We don't need to stick with candidates who are undeservingly in their positions. Anyway, moving on. We got some census numbers from the 2020 census. And the big fact, if you haven't heard, is that the number of white people in America has declined for the first time since 1790. That's a long time ago. It's like 230 years or something, if I did my math correctly there. Less white people in America for the first time. First decade since 1790, less white people. Dropped from 223.6 million people in 2010, white people, to 204.3 million in 2020, an 8.6% decrease. The proportion of white people in America also dropped from 63.7% in 2010 to 57.8% in 2020, a 5.9% decrease as the country moves toward being a country where whites are in the minority and we are truly a grand melting pot with no ethnic majority. I'm, I'm sure there will be a, you know, majority, theoretically speaking, but it won't be over 50%. There'll be larger groups. William Frey, a demographer at the Brookings Institution, said the opioid epidemic and lower-than-anticipated birth rates among millennials after the Great Recession accelerated the white population's decline. I've been hearing a lot about the birth rate of millennials, millennials not choosing not to have kids. I read a book, I finished a book last week called Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation by Anne Helen Peterson, and that book talked at length about how millennials are choosing not to have kids because of because of economic situations, there's not enough money. We can barely afford a house. We're putting off kids because we aren't financially well off enough to be able to have them. And so the number of white people in America has declined rapidly paired with the opioid epidemic. Another fact, the nation grew by just 7.4%, which is the lowest amount since the 1930s. Great Depression. I wonder why. Birth rates, economic issues, immigration bans, all those types of things are going to be contributors to the slower growth of America. All things to keep an eye on as we move forward. Next story. In news that stuns no one, Rand Paul has only just now divulged that his family owned stock in Gilead Science, which produced the therapeutic for COVID remdesivir. Obviously, a vaccine would hurt stock for a therapeutic designed to treat the virus because the vaccine is manufactured to prevent the virus, so this all looks much worse because Rand Paul was the only senator to vote against the first COVID relief package. In a tweet I read yesterday, this is apparently the first time in 10 years that the Paul family has purchased an individual stock. So first individual stock the family has purchased in a decade, failed to disclose purchase of said stock for months, and finally voted against the COVID relief package because that would help bring a vaccine to fruition, which would hurt this stock price. Just interesting. I think the larger story here, and I've seen this being discussed, is should our elected officials on a federal level be able to invest at all? They're getting all sorts of inside information. They know things that affect the market. They know products coming out. They know where funding is going. I personally don't think they should. It's a conflict of interest. If you literally have the power to affect companies, how they're doing, what their profit margins are, how much federal funding they get, and for what, 
if you have the ability to do that, you can very easily just make some quote unquote smart and timely investments in companies that you're going to funnel funds to. It just doesn't seem ethical. And I think we should look at banning investments or at least new investments for federal elected officials. So that's an interesting story. Keep an eye on that one as well. We'll see if anything comes from insider trading on that one. Let's keep moving. Now, a lot happened in Congress this week, so I want to do that all together. The last thing I want to touch on before I get into that is the situation in Afghanistan. We have removed our troops from Afghanistan after 20 years. We completed a drawdown of those troops. And as a result, it seems that the Taliban is very easily taking back large portions of that country. Here's a news intro from ABC News on the situation. To Afghanistan now, where the Taliban is seizing control of more and more territory. Militants have taken their 10th major city of Ghazni and are closing in on Kandahar in the south. Now concerns are growing that they could take the capital of Kabul, home to the U.S. Embassy and hundreds of American troops. So some background here. We have been in Afghanistan for 20 years. We went to war there because of the attack on 9-11. We killed Osama bin Laden the then leader of Al-Qaeda, and the mastermind of 9-11, we killed him in 2011. That is 10 years ago. Over these 20 years, we have lost 2,300 American lives and had 20,066 Americans wounded. As of May 1st, 2021, we were withdrawing our troops. I want to put this in perspective. Number one, America has the largest military budget in the world at $850 billion per year. We have been in Afghanistan for 20 years. After 20 years of regaining territories and helping to establish a government and a military there, after 20 years of work, after 20 years of spending American resources, losing American lives, the Taliban has been able to take half of the major cities in three months. We put in 20 years of work And in three months, half of that country has fallen into Taliban hands. How much more time and energy? How many more resources? How many more lives are we willing to lose there? If a 20-year stint worth of effort is going to collapse in three months, what information do we have that says if we spend more time there, we're going to see a different result? We've been trying to establish an Afghan military presence For years and years, we've been trying to prop up a government there for years and years, and we've done this for 20, and in three months, half the country has fallen. Clearly, something is extremely ineffective, whether it's our training or their government or a lack of will by their government or a lack of training in the military, whatever it is, something is not working. So why do we think we'd see a different result if we didn't pull out? Or, you know, if we didn't pull out, maybe we we would just prolong this, but then we'd pull our troops out because they have to come home sometime, right? We can't have our troops in a country in a quasi-war for, you know, another 10 years fighting an invisible enemy. We we can't keep doing that. It doesn't make any sense. At some point, we got to say, okay, mission over. Killed Osama bin Laden, got the mastermind of 9-11, have largely been able to reduce the numbers of terror groups in the the region. Time to come home. And now we got to leave it up to the Afghani people to determine their own will. We've given them training and resources. But some criticism 
Some people are criticizing President Biden for pulling out saying, oh, you know, Biden's failure in Afghanistan. It's been 20 years and four presidents. There's no way that the responsibility falls on Joe Biden's shoulders after being in office for just a few months. No way. We've had four presidents. Four. 20 years. Okay, if there's going to be blame placed on military leaders or bad planning or we can look at the Afghani people and say, you know, what what do they want there? Maybe they don't want what we want. And maybe that's why it's falling so quickly. I don't know. I don't know the very complex dynamics behind that situation. But I do know this. If you put in 20 years of effort and you lose 2,300 Americans, and after all that effort, in 90 days, half the country is able to fall to Taliban, I want to know what people think we could do differently that would yield a different result. I like to play games. I like to play gambling games like craps and poker. On many occasions after losing my first buy-in, I'll throw in more money. I'll think I can recoup my former investment. If I just buy in again, I'll win it back. Let's do it. The most times I lose again and I feel bad because now I paid twice, but then I will buy in again sometimes. And at the end of it, I could be down three or four times my initial buy-in because I thought if I just spend more money, if I can just change my luck, the result will be different. And we're facing a similar situation with this. Outside of a U.S. commitment to not only dedicate a massive force to Afghanistan, but to fully clear the nation of terror groups and then likely annex Afghanistan as a U.S. territory, I'm not sure I see a solution here. Aside from actually establishing our own kind of government in Afghanistan that is under American control, with American people, with American forces, I don't understand how we can think we can achieve any stability there. If after 20 years of effort and 20 years of training the Afghani people and 20 years of setting up a government there, helping them to set up a government there, it hasn't worked. So I think the criticism is completely unfounded. I know we're playing politics, but I think our politics needs to be a little bit real these days. We have had 20 years and four presidents overseeing this war, multiple Congresses, multiple administrations. The blame does not fall on Joe Biden. If you wanted to keep the troops there, I will ask you, what do you think us keeping the troops there would have done given this result? And how much longer do you think we should just keep a presence there just so this doesn't happen? How many more American lives do you want to spend for that? Because we are spending time, resources, money, and American lives, American safety on this, on this 20-year war. So I'd ask you, what would you hope to accomplish by keeping troops there? Because I think we can all agree it's not economically sound or responsible to just keep troops on the ground there just because. We spend $850 billion on the military. If they can't get the job done, if they couldn't get the job done, or we don't want to go to full-out war, and we don't want to establish our own uh, territory there, I guess, which, which has complications of its own on the international scale. You know, the U.S. takes over Afghanistan. That's not going to go down well, like Russia taking Crimea. There, there's no good way out. So why spend more American lives and money and resources? There's not a good solution. If you have one, throw it out there. But don't just blame Biden. It's been 20 years. So that is my thought on the Afghanistan situation. Let me know what you think. Let me know in the comments what you think. If you think 
But but I don't want to hear, oh, we should just keep our troops there so the Taliban doesn't take over, because that's what we've been doing and it hasn't worked. Is the Taliban gone? No. Are the terror groups gone? No. And the Afghani army can't even stand up for 90 days. So unless you have a completely different plan where you're willing to invest more American time, more American money, more resources, more lives, I don't really want to hear hear it either. I don't want more of the same thing. We've done that for 20 years. It hasn't worked. We've got enough data on that. Throw me something else. If you disagree with me, throw me something else and let me know. And, and, and please, you know, make it semi-feasible. Anyway, those are my thoughts on the Afghanistan situation. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we had a really busy week in Congress, especially over the last couple of days. So what I want to do is I want to detail what's happening in Congress. And I'm going to throw out a lot of numbers, but there's a few things I'd like you to pay attention to here, especially if you're not keyed into the news every single day. One, as I've discussed in previous weeks, there's an infrastructure bill on the table. $2.3 trillion infrastructure bill is what it was supposed to be originally. And there is the budget that Congress passes every year, but that has a lot of new policies in it. Both of those things are actively in Congress right now. I want to detail what is in each of those bills, but I also want to get into the way those bills are going to or not going to be passed, because the politics of this are really interesting, and I'd like to know where everyone else is on this, Democrat or Republican, and I've got a few other things that I want to bring up historically. So if you want, ignore the numbers, ignore the stats, just listen to what's in the bill and the politics of it. But if you like the numbers, they're going to be there too, just giving you a heads up. So I'd like to start with the infrastructure bill. In a very late session of Congress this week, the Senate passed in a bipartisan fashion a $1 trillion infrastructure bill. This is less than half of what Joe Biden had originally proposed, but the bill passed with bipartisan support. 69 to 30, 18 Republicans in total, including Mitch McConnell, voted for the bill. There were cuts to the bill, and some of those cuts included things like water infrastructure, funding for electric vehicles, more funding for public transit. And the Senate passed the bill, but this must pass the House. Keep that in mind about the bill. This is the largest infrastructure bill in over a decade. It represents $550 billion in new federal spending, and I detailed that a couple of episodes ago. To go over some of the numbers, $65 billion is for improved internet accessibility, internet and broadband. $110 billion is for roads and bridges, now we're up to $175 there. $25 billion for airports and for Amtrak. That $25 billion for the airports and Amtrak is the most funding Amtrak has received in 50 years. 73 billion going toward the electric grid. 8 billion is going to go toward putting out more electric car charging stations. 17 billion for clean buses and ferries. And 15 billion for removing lead pipes. I do want to say we know there have been issues with clean drinking water in America. We saw this in Flint, Michigan. Our water infrastructure needs to be updating. That is one of the areas that they cut funding from. The numbers I just went through, that totals about $314 billion of that $550 billion in new spending. Some other projects that are included, just to list them off here. There's money set aside to help restore the Great Lakes, to also help in restoring the Long Island Sound, Chesapeake Bay, San Francisco Bay, 
There's a pilot program to reduce collisions between cars and animals. And there are grants for communities to help with clean drinking water. With the pilot program to reduce collisions between cars and animals, I want to say, I live in the Northeast. I don't know where everybody else is from. But growing up here, I didn't see deer. I didn't see turkeys. I didn't see coyotes. I go for a drive most nights and we see multiple deer and there's turkeys everywhere and we see coyotes. So there is a need for this pilot program to reduce collisions between cars and animals. I hit a deer once, not fun. So I, I'm on board with this pleasant surprise in the infrastructure bill. Like I said, this has to pass the House. Some House Democrats have conditioned their support of the infrastructure vote on the passage of the $3.5 trillion budget bill that's in the Senate. The budget bill also passed the Senate, not the actual bill, but the ability to begin drafting that legislation. Senate committees can now draft legislation with policies for climate change, health, education, paid family and medical leave, using a process called the budget reconciliation process. And doing this will let them avoid the filibuster and pass the budget along party lines. They can do this once per session, I believe, use this reconciliation process. Tax increases on the ultra-wealthy are going to fund some of the projects. Households that make under $400,000 a year will not be affected, nor will small businesses or family farms. Those are exempt from tax increases. Again, there will be significant overhauls in healthcare, education, immigration, and in the tax code. The budget also looks to expand Medicare and includes many safety nets for climate change. Some major things included in this budget are universal pre-K for three and four-year-olds, free community college for the first two years. It establishes a climate change core to help prevent and mitigate the issues associated with climate change. The bill will add dental and vision coverage to Medicare. So our elderly will also have dental and vision care. It's surprising that that's not already the case. It will possibly lower the Medicare eligibility age to 65. There is a historic investment in affordable housing in this bill. The bill will also aim to lower the cost of prescription drugs. It will establish paid family and medical leave in the United States of America. It will impose higher taxes on wealthy businesses and corporations. If passed, this would be the largest spending bill on social programs since the Great Society of the 1960s. What are the politics of this bill? Joe Manchin, everyone's least favorite Democrat, is currently unsupportive of the cost. He said it puts at risk our nation's ability to respond to the unforeseen crises our country could face. Senator Manchin, funding to prevent the worsening of climate change, and to put in place mitigation for damages that we will incur as a result is funding our nation's ability to respond to crises. In fact, it's mitigating the ability for those crises to happen. Manchin can't possibly be referring to war, since we spend more than something like the next 20 countries combined on warfare, so there's plenty of funding there. So there shouldn't be any need for increased spending on that front, and we have money set aside with FEMA for natural disasters. So not sure how much money Joe Manchin wants to take out of this bill, nor do I know where he'd want to allocate it, since this bill actively works to mitigate so many of the crises that we are facing. Manchin also said it's irresponsible to continue spending at levels more suited to respond to a Great Depression or a Great Recession. 
And this line of thinking bothers me because like our healthcare system, that is reactive thinking. Oh, we have a problem. Now let's fix it. How about we spend the money up front? Spend the money up front, reduce the problems, better our healthcare, better our services, better the lives of American people so that when something goes wrong, they are better equipped to deal with it instead of having to pass multi-trillion dollar relief bills because we don't have the system set up in the first place. The COVID relief bills needed to be passed not because, or not only because, the American people were suffering and it was unexpected, but also because our system of government isn't working for us. The middle class is declining. We have the largest wealth gap in nearly our entire country's history. That money was given to the American people because they, we, didn't have any means to better our lives in a way that would be helpful in preventing a crisis like that. Spend the money proactively. Get ahead of things. It is not responsible to only respond to crises as they happen. You'll spend more reacting after the damage has been done than you will spend in preventing the damage. This is common knowledge. This is not new thinking. Apply common sense to our legislation. Spend the money up front. Senator Sinema of Arizona also said that she would not support a $3.5 trillion bill, but that she was open to negotiations. Now, there's pressure from both moderates like Manchin and Cinema, and from progressives in the House to get this bill passed in one way or the other and with varying numbers. So here's a clip of Senate leader Chuck Schumer addressing concerns of overspending or underspending from both sides of the Democratic caucus. Look, there are some in my caucus who may believe it's too much. There are some in my caucus who believe it's too little. The original bill that Senator Sanders put in was six trillion. I supported that. And um, I can tell you this in reconciliation. One, we are going to all come together to get something done. And two, it will have every part of the Biden plan in big, in a big, bold, robust way. So Schumer didn't get into specifics about what the actual price would be, but he did say that everything that is in Biden's plan will be in the bill and will be there in a big, bold way. President Biden said, if your primary concern right now is the cost of living, you should support this plan, not oppose it. A vote against this plan is a vote against lowering the cost of health care, housing, child care, elder care, and prescription drugs for American families. Bernie Sanders, who initially proposed a $6 trillion budget, not $3.5 trillion, $6 trillion, said this legislation will not only provide enormous support to the kids of this country, to the parents of this country, to the elderly people of this country, but it will also, I hope, restore the belief that in America we can have a government that works for all, not just the few. And in this case, Bernie's right, because this bill comprehensively gives aid to all Americans of all ages. It, it just does. It's so comprehensive in the programs that it has that everyone will benefit from this bill in some or multiple ways. As I mentioned earlier, there are some progressives in the House that are threatening not to vote on the infrastructure bill unless this $3.5 trillion budget plan passes the Senate first. And some moderates in the House are signaling that they will not vote on the budget, this $3.5 trillion budget, unless they vote on the infrastructure bill that passed the Senate first. And in fact, in news today, 
News reports suggest that nine moderate House members will demand that Nancy Pelosi not delay the infrastructure bill. Pelosi commented and said they're not going to vote against child care and senior care and climate policy and expanded health care and things that are not only important parts of the Democratic agenda and the administration's agenda, but also widely popular. She said, I think we can work through them, referring to the problems. So why all this talk of what will be voted on when? Who cares, right? Let's just pass some bills. Let's actually get something done for the American people. Unfortunately, it's more complicated than that. And I got to say, I'm with the progressives on this one, as I usually am. The infrastructure bill has passed the Senate. But Democrats have made it very clear that whatever wasn't in the infrastructure bill, whatever they couldn't get into the infrastructure bill, they would try to get into the budget reconciliation bill, since the reconciliation bill can pass along party lines. They don't need Republicans for it. And it won't be filibustered. So whatever didn't get into infrastructure, they would put in the budget. House progressives fear that if the infrastructure vote comes to them first, and the House passes the infrastructure bill, that moderate Democrats will get cold feet and not approve the full $3.5 trillion budget that includes the rest of Biden's plan. Essentially, they don't trust the moderate wing of the party to follow through on passing this agenda, which baffles me because the fact of the matter is, is this stuff is all good for Americans. It's very clear it's all good for Americans. While it does increase the deficit over the next 10 years, it doesn't do it by very much each year. It's like $25 billion per year, which in the scheme of things is not that much money. I know that sounds weird, but $25 billion a year as a deficit is not that much. So the moderate Democrats want the infrastructure bill to come first. And they're saying, oh, well, you know, we shouldn't hold it up. The American people need this money. And that might be true, but we've waited 10 years for this money. And so maybe we should wait a little bit longer to make sure that the rest of the Democratic agenda passes. That makes sense. If these Democrats were on board with that, this wouldn't be an issue, especially since we know that the budget plan does not need Republican support. It's a sure thing. So this is why progressives are a little bit distrustful. It doesn't make sense to say bring the infrastructure bill to the table if the moderate Democrats are implying that they're not okay with the $3.5 trillion price tag. On that $3.5 trillion price tag, I got really curious as to what Trump's budgets were over the last four years. And what I think is interesting is that Trump's budgets were actually more expensive. And I didn't really think about this until yesterday, but then I saw a Republican on Twitter bashing the Biden budget saying, oh, you know, we're spending way too much money. We're spending way too much money. And I thought, well, how much money are Republicans okay with spending? None of Donald Trump's budgets over the last four years were under $4 trillion. What Joe Biden has proposed is a $3.5 trillion budget. 3.5. This budget is cheaper than any of Donald Trump's budgets. It's cheaper than any of them. But rather than cutting taxes and things like that, the Democrats are raising taxes to increase revenue and then spending money on social programs. It's not that Republicans don't like the price tag. It's that Republicans don't like where the money's being spent because they had no issue approving budgets over $4 trillion multiple years in a row. And this is also where my criticism of Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema comes in. Because if the Republicans were willing to spend over $4 trillion every year for basically nothing, because the American people don't have much to show for it, we didn't get increased health care, we didn't get paid family medical leave, we didn't get expansion of Medicare, we didn't get things that helped the middle class, 
Those were all corporate subsidies. It all went to corporate spending. Went to the border wall. Went to Homeland Security. If Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema are perfectly okay with the Republicans passing a $4 trillion budget, then why are they being critical of a Democratic $3.5 trillion budget? Where does their support actually lie? It doesn't make sense. Support the $3.5 trillion bill, pass the bill, stop worrying about the, the numbers in the spending. The Republicans didn't worry about the numbers in the spending. Our bill is cheaper. Our bill is more economical. Our bill provides more to the middle class. Pass the bill. Stop complaining. Stop making everything difficult. Like moderate Democrats are making everything way too difficult. If Republicans are willing to spend more than Democrats, that's a problem. Democrats just need to pass these bills. So I understand why there's this game being played with the timing. If the infrastructure bill passes without the budget passing, then there may not be enough votes in the House to pass the $3.5 trillion bill. And what's fascinating to me is I don't really think most Americans actually care about the spending. I've wondered many times, where does the money go? How much money is too much money? How do we know it's too much money? You'll hear, oh, well, it increases the deficit or it increases the debt. But has that really had any long-term consequence? People keep saying, oh, your kids are going to pay for it. Well, I've been around for 30 years and taxes don't seem to be too bad and we seem to be doing okay. And like, yeah, we have a debt and we have a deficit. But, you know, Clinton, Clinton ran a surplus. We can turn this around. The way to turn it around is to enable the middle class to reinvest in the economy by giving them the means to do so, by taxing corporations, taxing the ultra-wealthy, making them pay their fair share. We used to tax the ultra-wealthy at marginal tax rates above 80% in this country, and we were great. And we had wonderful industry. We had tons of industry. We were innovative. We were, so we were providing salaries to families on a single income to be able to raise a family and buy a house. And corporations were thriving. Maybe CEOs weren't making 30 and 40 times what your average employee was making, but the company itself was thriving. Let's get back to that. If we bring in more money, spending isn't such a big issue. This is like economics 101, right? Oh, you have a debt? Well, we need more money. Where are we going to get the money? Taxes. Because that's where countries get money. Taxes. There's no other way. So will taxes go up? Yes. If taxes are going to go up, should we get more bang for our buck? Yes. Should it go to corporate subsidies? No. They already make billions and billions and billions of dollars. They don't need more of the government's billions and billions of dollars and then not to pay any taxes. Sorry. They shouldn't get a free pass. I don't get a free pass. They shouldn't get a free pass. So to the moderate Democrats out there, pass the $3.5 trillion bill first, then pass infrastructure. You get a pat on the back from everybody. We all love you. Good job. You got it done. We've passed more stuff in the first six months of Biden's presidency, six, seven months of Biden's presidency, then the Trump administration passed in four years. Good start. Let's, let's do that. Stop making things difficult. Joe Manchin, looking at you, stop it. You're being a child and you're being naive and it bothers me because you should be able to see this stuff. So that is the news on the budget bill and the infrastructure bill, the politics around it and what's in it. We have a lot of good things coming, a lot of good things coming for the middle class. And hopefully some accountability from the wealthy class. So we can move beyond legislation now and we can get to the last couple of issues here. And once again, I have to talk about COVID. I don't like talking about COVID every week. I would like to talk about COVID less. I would like COVID to disappear from the general conversation because we figured out COVID. 
but we haven't figured out COVID because so many Americans remain immune to logic. I don't know how. What are we dealing with? Last week, I went through the states and I mentioned how it's like seven states have more deaths than the rest of the 43 combined. What we're seeing in America is the irresponsible action by several states, primarily in the South, to do anything about COVID, and they're ruining it for the rest of us. Ron DeSantis, you are ruining it for the rest of us. Greg Abbott, you are ruining it for the rest of us, and you're killing your people. I am not going to sugarcoat it here. Blood on your hands because of your irresponsibility and your refusal to acknowledge reality, you're psychopaths. We're battling the Delta variant. The Delta variant, the CDC says, can cause more severe illness and spread as easily as chickenpox. It can spread more easily than the common cold. It can spread more easily than the 1918 flu. And it can spread more easily than smallpox. And also, the Delta variant is dangerous for kids. Kids are falling ill in a way that did not happen with last year's outbreak. Some of that is because Delta is just more contagious. So maybe it's not more deadly or severe, but it was already deadly and severe to some children. And if you increase the amount of cases amongst children, guess what? More kids with severe illnesses and more kids dying. Vaccines still reduce the chance of severe illness and hospitalization drastically. And most new infections are amongst the unvaccinated. Like we said last week, this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. New information this week is that there are some new symptoms associated specifically with the Delta variant, and that includes sinus congestion, runny nose, sore throat, and sneezing more than usual. In fact, it can be easily confused for allergies, and vaccinated people are more likely to have that excessive sneezing. Vaccinated people. There's also talk of a booster shot. Boosters have not yet been recommended by the CDC. Pfizer actually recommended that all Americans get a booster weeks ago, and the FDA said, no, we don't see any evidence that we need a booster, but that conversation is obviously very quickly reverse course. Boosters are expected to be approved, or actually were approved this week, for the immunocompromised. So certain immunocompromised people are now eligible to go get a third shot alongside More than a million people have actually already found a way to get a third shot illegally or without, you know, CDC guidance. So clearly there is interest in a third shot. Personally, I say if we're going to need a booster anyway, and we're already six months in, and a good portion of Americans just refuse to get vaccinated, give the rest of us a third shot so that we don't get sick and we don't go to the hospital and let the rest of the people do what they're going to do. I don't want anyone to die, but at this point, if we're sitting on a stockpile, put the third shots in people's arms. Come on. The good news, some good news, is that new vaccination rates have doubled since last month. This is probably because people who didn't get the vaccine ended up in the hospital begging for the vaccine, or people who didn't get the vaccine died and other people saw it because some of these people were posting on YouTube that, hey, I've got COVID now and I regret not getting the vaccine. And then, oh, that person dies a few days later. And some people think, oh, wait a minute, maybe this is real. Someone I know has died of COVID and they weren't vaccinated, or someone's kid is in the hospital because their parents didn't get vaccinated. It shouldn't take that. It shouldn't take that type of severe consequence for people to finally understand the severity of this pandemic. But rates are up in the last month. Vaccination rates are up in the last month. 
Like I said, nothing like an onslaught of unvaccinated family members and friends being hospitalized or dying to get people to take the virus seriously. You know, too bad we couldn't have done that in, you know, May, when if we hit herd immunity in May and got 70 to 80% of people vaccinated, maybe we wouldn't be here right now. Maybe we could be enjoying our summer and not worried about mask mandates and having to hear about Ron DeSantis every day, but here we are. The largest group of new people being vaccinated are actually aged 25 to 39. They've made up over 25% of the new vaccinations. Also, 40% of kids aged 12 to 15 now have at least one COVID shot, which should hopefully help with the back-to-school effect. Uh, Hopefully, we don't see as big a surge as last year, although with Delta, we are already beginning to see that. 675 college campuses across the nation have mandated vaccinations for students and staff. Two judges in Texas have rejected Governor Abbott's order from last month that prohibits government entities, including schools, from mandating masks. A restraining order is in place on the governor's order until August 24th, but that's right when school starts. So if that doesn't hold up, then schools still won't be able to put in place mandates. Really interesting how Republicans are all about governing at the local level, and then their governors are not letting their local localities make their own rules and regulations when it comes to COVID. But, you know, I'm just here to point out the hypocrisy. In a statement Tuesday, prior to the judge's rulings to grant their restraining orders, Texas Governor Greg Abbott's office said, We are all working to protect Texas children and those most vulnerable among us, but violating the governor's executive orders and violating parental rights is not the way to do it. Governor Abbott has been clear that the time for mask mandates is over. Now is the time for personal responsibility, his press secretary said. Parents and guardians have the right to decide whether their child will wear a mask or not, just as with any other decision in their child's life. What bullshit. If you're working to protect Texas children and those most vulnerable, you put in place mask mandates. If you have any idea how germs work, not just COVID, germs, personal responsibility doesn't matter because people are affected by the choices of other people. That's been the case this whole time. Can someone please explain to me why Republicans can't get it through their head that if they don't get vaccinated and they don't wear a mask, they are going to spread the virus to other people, affecting the well-being of other people? Why is this concept that, like, your irresponsible decisions are bad, have very negative consequences, potentially fatal consequences for other people? Why is that such a hard concept to grasp? Are you in denial Are you feeling guilty about the virus that you've already spread to other people and the lives that you may have already been responsible for for taking? I don't get it. Why is this a hard concept for Republicans specifically to understand? Personal responsibility does not help to solve this problem. It's not like, oh, if I wear a mask, I won't get the virus. That's not how it works. If I wear a mask, I'm preventing or helping to prevent the spread of the virus so that you don't get it. If you're not wearing a mask, it doesn't mean that you decide that it's okay for you to get the virus. You're deciding that it's okay for you to spread the virus to other people and potentially have a fatal impact on their life. That's the choice you're making. Get it through your head. Sorry for the lecture for the people who already know this. It's just extremely frustrating to hear the same circular argument over and over again, like people in denial about the fact that they're ruining people's lives. Florida. Florida. Ken, for 18% of all new cases in the U.S., their hospitals are quickly filling up. And only neighboring Louisiana has more cases per 100,000 people. And in a fit of insanity, 
DeSantis somehow blamed Biden and immigrants for the increase in cases. You know, not the fact that he won't implement a mask mandate or like hasn't taken the virus seriously at all to this point. And now his hospitals are filling up and they've got more cases than they did at any other point. It's crazy. So Florida, borders Louisiana, all the, all those, sorry, Texas borders Louisiana. They have huge issues there. It's right across that, that line down there, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and Florida. It's all terrible. And those are all states that have refused to take action on this virus from the beginning and continue to do so, except now they're up against the Delta variant and they're still just ignorant to the reality. It really bothers me. Elected officials should have a clue. This isn't about personal choice because if it were about personal choice, it would only affect the person making the choice. That's how personal choice works in America. Personal choice means the choices I make that only affect me, that's the freedom I have. If I choose to go to the library, I choose to go to the library. If I don't go to the library, it doesn't affect anybody. If I choose to drive a sports car and have my insurance go up, I choose to drive a sports car and my insurance goes up, doesn't affect anybody else. If I choose not to wear a mask and therefore make myself available to get COVID, I am then infecting other people with a potentially fatal illness. That choice has grave effects on other people. That is not the type of personal choice that we're allowed to make in America. That's a bad choice for community. It, it, it's a choice made, honestly, with bad intentions. You cannot make that choice and not, have, not know that it has terrible consequences. If you make the choice not to wear a mask and not to get vaccinated outside of having actual health-related issues that would prevent you from doing so, you are simply okay with killing other people. Because you know by now that the virus is dangerous, the virus spreads, the virus kills people, the virus makes people extremely sick, and for some people that don't die of the illness, for some people who don't even have a severe case of the illness, there is long COVID, which has month-long effects on a person. If you're choosing not to be vaccinated, or you're choosing not to wear a mask, you're choosing to hurt other people. So your intentions are bad. You just have bad intentions. There's no way around it. And I'm not going to sugarcoat it here. I'm hoping that with the new bluntness of reality and the new, you know, unfortunate rise in cases and deaths in some of those unvaccinated places, that we will see the rise of vaccination and therefore, hopefully, a reduction of cases in the coming weeks and months so that we can avoid a bad winter. And Thankfully, most of these new vaccinations are coming from those hardest hit states now. So that is good news. It, it sucks that we're there. Like I said before, last episode, every death since May has been preventable. It's just sad that we have lost those people. Some of them, you know, their own ignorance caused them to be in those situations. But some people did everything that they could do. They got vaccinated. They socially distanced. They were good. And because unvaccinated people decided that they didn't want to protect themselves and therefore protect others. Some of these people ha that had previously done everything to protect themselves caught this virus because the unvaccinated have made it so transmissible and those people died. And that's where the real sadness is with these cases, because those people should not have been put in danger in the first place, or certainly not the same amount of danger. So we will all have to reckon through history with the reality of what this situation is. And I don't think we're able to do it right now. I, I think we can imagine where that will go. But at some point, we're going to have to come to terms with what we did 
because it isn't what we experienced. It's, it's what we did as a country and uh, not looking forward to that. And finally, I'd like to talk about climate. Talked a lot about climate last week, so I just want to give a brief update here. I'm going to play a clip of a uh, from the news, uh, just an update on the Dixie wildfire in California. Here we go. The Dixie fire is the second largest wildfire in state history. It's also the largest fire burning in the U.S. right now, and it just keeps growing. It's burned more than 515,000 acres across Butte, Plumas, Lassen, and Tehama counties. More than a quarter of the nation's firefighting resources are on it, but containment is still at just 31%. As Carly mentioned earlier, unfortunately, the weather right now is causing concerns with stronger east winds coming in from thunderstorms. We talked about how the infrastructure bill and the budget bill both have mitigating funding in there for climate change, and this fire is certainly a result of it. The largest fire in California history was last year. So two years in a row, we have, we've had essentially record-setting fires. The Dixie Fire, as mentioned, second largest wildfire in California history. It's only 30% contained. Over 500 homes have been destroyed, as well as the historic town of Greenville. There are many fires burning in the West. There is smoke in our air routinely. You can see it changing the color of especially the moon at night, I think is the most obvious place, at least for us that are further out from the fire. But air quality in the Midwest is awful. This is a big deal. We've had record-setting temperatures across the country. I don't know that it needs more emphasis, but I do think people should be aware, especially people who aren't in California who don't see the effects of this, be aware that this fire has been burning for months. It's destroyed people's livelihoods. It's destroyed homes. It's continuing to grow. So we just want to stay on top of that. Finally, while we're talking about climate, linked below in the description is an article. It's written by a millennial and a former Rhode Island state representative named Aaron Regenberg. This was published in the New Republic today, August 13th, and the article explores how we decide to raise kids amidst today's climate issues. The article is titled, How to Tell Your Child About the End of the World, and I promise you it's worth the read, it's thought-provoking, it's inspiring, and it really paints a great picture of what the climate crisis is doing to us as not only a generation, but how we perceive the future. So check that out in the description. Once again, article called How to Tell Your Child About the End of the World, published in the New Republic by Aaron Regenberg, former state representative from the state of Rhode Island. We have covered a lot today. The news is all over the place. I haven't had the news on while I'm recording this podcast, and there might be new news. I'm not sure. I might have to put an addendum on this. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to put an addendum on this podcast. I'll just cover it next week if it's still relevant. But there's been a lot of news. So what have we covered? We covered Jeopardy. Remember Jeopardy? Talked about at the beginning. We got a new host, Mike Richards, not LeVar Burton. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue lobbying for LeVar Burton, I've decided. We're not giving up on LeVar Burton. We're going to get him in there. This Mike Richards guy, yeah, it's not going to last. It's not going to work out. We're, uh, I mean, we're, we're not going to do anything. We're just not going to watch. We're not going to watch Jeopardy until LeVar Burton is the host of Jeopardy. We're going to go on a rating strike against Mike Richards and Jeopardy, LeVar Burton was the guy. Come on. So we talked about Jeopardy, new host, for now. Talked about the census. There are less white people in America. I don't know why I sound so happy when I say that. I'm, I'm actually in, indifferent to it, more or less. It, it's good that the country's diversifying. That's a good thing. I think it will be good if, you know, white people are not the majority because we have racial issues in this country. 
I don't think that will solve those issues because I feel like white people will continue to act as if they were the majority, but we are finally turning into the melting pot that we actually were founded as or aspired to be, I suppose. Rand Paul did some naughty things with stocks. He might get in trouble. We'll see what happens there. Maybe he'll get voted out of office. Maybe he'll go to jail. Maybe nothing will happen. But we do know that our federal elected officials should not be allowed to make investments while in office because it's a conflict of interest and this type of thing happens. We talked about Afghanistan. And I went on at length about that situation and how it's, what choice do we have? Please leave me a comment. Let me know. I'm very interested in other people's thoughts on that situation. I'm not an expert in military strategy or war. So I'm very interested to know what other people think about that situation because I don't know what else we could or should do. I'm not sure we should continue wasting American lives and resources there unless we have a very, very different plan from the things that we've already tried. We talked about the infrastructure bill, passed the Senate this week, headed to the House, the budget. They're starting to draft $3.5 trillion budget bill, which is great. We talked about the politics of how those two bills are very interconnected in the way that they need to pass the House and the Senate, and all the good things that are coming in those bills. Lots of great programs, mitigation for climate change, electric car chargers, you know, just change the landscape a little bit so that can make life a little bit of interest. So it might be nice to see that. We talked about COVID. We just heard that. You probably remember me talking about it. It was just a few minutes ago. We talked about COVID. Very upset with certain people and certain governors about the COVID situation. But we are Americans and we will we will get it right eventually. I hope. And finally, just touched on climate real quick there and talked about Aaron Regenberg's article in The New Republic. Please check it out in the description below. Thank you so much for listening to The New Deal. I think I am at my hour. I've not gone over. This is a great week. We covered a lot. Thank you so much for listening to The New Deal. Please, if you like what you hear, tell friends about The New Deal podcast. I'm going to go to thenewdeal.com. Tell them to listen to this raving lunatic that you enjoy for some reason. Thank you so much for listening to The New Deal podcast. I appreciate it, everybody. I will talk to you guys next week. New Deal out.